Open your Bibles to the Gospel in 1 Chronicles 29, 14. Check this out today. The title of the message is Stewards, Not Owners. Stewards, Not Owners. 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Kings in that region there, 1st and 2nd Chronicles, back there. One verse. That's the verse on the card. And remember, that card has two spots on there, one for 2019 to finish the year out, and then the 2020. That's our verse that, that, that God gave to us before we launched the campaign, and that's what we're going to preach on. 1st Chronicles 29, 14, hear now the word of God. But who am I? And who are my people that we should be able to give as generously as this? Everything comes from you, and we have given you only what comes from your hand. And you know who's speaking, yes? The Lord through David. And may God add his rich blessing to his inspired and errant and fallible word. Pray with me. Father, it's no accident that we're here this morning, everyone by divine appointment. Speak into each heart, regardless of age, station, and life. Make it a word of salvation for the unsaved, comfort for those in storm winds, and rest for the tired, weary, and heavy laden. All things to all people, that all within the sound of my voice would be in a saving relationship with Christ. Whether in this facility, your sanctuary, or by way of the internet, those who are watching now or will in the future. Father, we'd ask that you'd give us ears to hear and minds to understand and hearts that beat for nothing smaller than the Lord Jesus Christ. Come, now fount of every blessing. Unclutter our minds and unburden our hearts that we might see Jesus and Him only. And it's in Jesus' name we pray and all God's people said. Okay, under the heading, stewards, not owners. Three things. Number one, the Word. What does the Word have to say? Number two, the worship. What is worship related to stewardship? And then finally, number three, the widow. Now, for thousands of years, philosophers have been trying to answer the question, right? What is the meaning of life? You know life's big questions, who am I, why am I here, what am I here to be doing? And philosophers for centuries have been using speculation, imagination, trying to come up with answers to life's big questions. But we have something that trumps that. We don't have speculation or imagination, we have revelation. And here's the key, not until you find your life in Christ will life have meaning and significance in purpose from God's perspective. That's the key in understanding the whole thing when it comes to stewardship. It's all about God. Everything about your life is about Him. Salvation is about Him. Sanctification is about Him. Everything that we do. So the answers, the big, the big, the big answers to those questions are never going to come outside of Scripture. It can't. God has ordained that it will not. And remember, every philosopher, regardless of what it is that they believe, every philosopher is in the image of God. So all of us are in that same theological boat, if you will. We're all image bearers. And deep down, we know that we're made for something beyond this life. We know we're made for immortality. We know that. We know, there's, we know this can't be all there is. Atheists say that. It just, it just doesn't seem like there is. We know there isn't. So we have an opportunity to look at life from the perspective of a steward rather than an owner. And we're going to look at it biblically. Here's one of the best definitions. 
I think that I've ever been able to really come up with. The giving of oneself and possessions to God. His service, recognizing that we do not have the right of control over our property or ourselves. So look at the last line. Now listen, that flies in the face of our individualistic culture. Yes? You realize that today, today, the last 20 or 30 years, we live in the most individualistic cultural context the world has ever seen. Nothing in the world has ever been like the culture we live in today. Individual desires and and goals and and dreams and hopes and trumps everything. Gone is the concept of community and family. Now, there are still cultural contexts where that exists, but no longer here. We are steeped in what the philosophers will say, expressive individualism. That is critical in understanding the last portion of this definition. We do not have the right to control of control over our property or ourselves. You know the scripture verse, you're not your own, you were bought at a price, but whether they know it or not, that's the biblical truth. And expressive individualism simply flies in the face of who we really are as image bearers of God. But that's that's where we are. That's why we have to rethink how do we deliver the gospel? How do we preach an unchanging message in a continually changing cultural context? And that's what our evangelism program is all about. That's what my dissertation is on. How do we connect with them? How do we speak to them when we no longer have a shared language? The language is no longer shared. We used to live in an Acts 2 culture. That's a culture that understood the the biblical worldview. Most people knew that there was a creator God, the fall of man, the promised redeemer, and the coming of kingdom of heaven. No longer. We live in now an Acts 17 culture. We live in a Greek culture. You talk about sin and their eyes begin to glaze over. Doesn't make sense. So you can't start with a sinner in need of a savior. So we live in a totally different cultural context. And the alarm bells have been going off for 50, 60 years by those who are out in front of it. Guys like the doctor, Martin Lloyd-Jones, and, and many others, Francis Schaeffer, and many, many other leaders in the field. We are in a cultural context where it is all about the individual. This sermon, these, this message flies in the face of that. Owners have rights, yes? And stewards have what? Responsibilities. Now, you know that in the church there's an ownership mentality, don't you? Yes, there is. And there's really nothing too wrong with it. Let me give you two examples. When you drove in today, when you drove in, didn't you look for your spot? Yes, you did. I watch sometimes through the window when you're driving around trying to find the spot that you're comfortable putting your car in. So, so you chuckle, right? But, it get, but it's deeper than that. It's, it, it's much deeper. You know how deeper it is? When you come inside of this building, what happens? You look for your spot. I want you to imagine something with me in your mind's eye. Imagine, imagine an unsuspecting visitor came to the church today, and that visitor came down front and sat in this front row, right where Claire is. The Feldmans have been sitting in this spot since the earth's crust cooled. Claire would say to you, excuse me, I don't have room for my busy bag here. Look where you sit. Lauren is in the same spot. 
You, 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 look, look, oh, oh, Dr. Bavine, you're in the same spot. I know exactly where you are. I know where you all, you all, Tommy always in the front row when he comes back from college, right here, right here, back with the coach. It's an ownership mentality. That's okay. You're comfortable where you sit. And you would welcome the visitor. You'd let, Kate, they, you'd let them sit with you, right? I understand. But we have an ownership mentality. So let's dive in. And let's take a look at what it means to be a steward, shall we? What does the word say about stewardship? In the beginning, God created everything. That's the end of that. We don't need to unpack that. We don't need to pray through it. That's just the end of it. Listen, you only have two choices. And the great apologists have framed it this way. There's two choices. In the beginning, God, or in the beginning, goo. That's it. From goo to you by way of the zoo, they say. How nice. That's your only choice. God or goo. And if it's God, then God created everything, including you. Okay? Now we go from there to Deuteronomy 8, because now I know what you're thinking. But wait a minute. Wait a minute, I, I, I play a role here. I got some gifts, I got some talents, I got some abilities, I got some stuff I'm putting in. All right, all right, let's take a look. Let's unpack this. You may say, and I know some of you are thinking this, I'm not alone, my power and the strength of my hands have produced this wealth for me. You, you could be thinking that. But remember, it is God who gives you the ability to produce wealth. What's the classic text in Scripture on this actually manifesting itself. You remember in Daniel chapter 4, remember King Nebuchadnezzar? You remember that guy? What does he end up saying? Is this not the great Babylon I have built by my mighty power for my glory? Remember when he says that? He looks out over Babylon. He says, is this not the great Babylon I built? And what happens to him? Almost instantly what happens to him? The prophecy says you're going to be out in the field eating grass like a cow. Your hair's going to grow long like the feathers of a bird, and and your nails are going to be like the claws of an animal. And they were, instantly. That should be arresting in our attention. We have a tendency to say, but my power, no, 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 no. Your next breath comes from God. The beat of your heart comes from God. Everything is coming from God. And God gives you, now if you have produced wealth... Who gave you the ability? God. Okay? Keeping, working through the scripture. Here's the great one on ownership. Ready? So that we're not confused on who the owner is. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. There's the ownership text. God, because he created everything, owns everything. Now, I know that becomes difficult, especially when our college students go off. You work with them, you train them, you teach them, and you send them off, but it's... it. it it's hard. They get to the campus and they go, man, this, this next couple years, this is Mark Anthony. He's living it right now. I got these couple years, finally got out from mama's thumb a little bit. I could take a breather. This is my life. And we say, no, 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 no. No, no, no. No, Melinda, it's not your life. It's not. It's his life that he gave to you on that campus to bring him glory. To expand the cause of his kingdom right where you are at school. That's your call right now today. 
And, and, the, and the college students, it, it's, a hard, it's a hard thing because you're surrounded by people with all these different worldviews and many living for themselves. So I understand the difficulty of it. That's why in our college ministry, we send you a word of encouragement just to try to keep you focused on the Lord because I know it's not easy. We have to remember we're not our own. We have been bought at a price, okay? And then here's the, here's the classic text, and Dr. Ron preached it in our first traditional service. So we'll preach it out of Malachi. There's only a few places in the Scripture where God says, you can test me. This is the primary location that we land when we read these words. It really is startling in what he says. So let's look at it very briefly. Malachi, right? The last book of the Old Testament. Will a man... Rob God, yet you rob me. But you ask, how do we rob you? In tithes and offerings. You are under a curse, the whole nation of you, because you are robbing me. This is a, this is a mark of the Lord's ownership. Giving is a mark of the Lord's ownership. Who owns your stuff? Bring, here's what he says, bring the whole tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. And then here's the key word. Test me in this says the Lord. He, he doesn't say that. This is remarkable. And see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that you will have room enough for it. Listen, this is, this is powerful stuff. Here's, here's what tithing really is. Tithing is what's called the training wheels of generosity. That's just the beginning point. And this is not easy if you didn't grow up in that cultural context. I did not. I grew up in church life, and, 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 and my dad would say, the church always has their hands in your pocket. And I grew up with that understanding. So we'd put a five or a ten in the plate. I, I didn't know. And I'll never forget the first day I walked into Coral Ridge Presbyterian Church. I hadn't even started seminary yet. We got saved in 95. I think it was 96. We were down at First Baptist, but we were invited. Perhaps it was the Eatons that invited us. And we came to Coral Ridge, and I'll never forget these words, and I still hear them. I, and I hear the way he would say it, thundering from the pulpit. We will now worship, this is Dr. Kennedy, we will now worship our God. God, he was one of the few who could say God in three syllables. We will now worship our God with his tithes in our offerings. And I went, what is that? that I, I had never, ever, ever. And that drove us to try to, what is this about? What do you mean, worship God? With his tithes and our offerings. And then somebody once framed it beautifully for me in this context. Listen, if you gave 10, God lets you keep 90. Not a bad deal. You got 90, you give him 10 back. So it's a context of understanding what? And, and, and Brian said it. We serve a giving God. For God so loved the world that he, that's all. So it shouldn't, and we want to be careful about giving out of compulsion and, and, or, or deep duty. That I've, I know some people who are afraid not to tithe. That's not a good thing. That's not a good thing. Well, it could be a good thing if you're not tithing right now. So if you want some guilt, we can, we can put a little bet on. No, no, no. No, we can do that. Doc, we, we, we can do that. No, I, I, no. God's going to come after you if you don't get that done. That's not a good thing. Remember, God doesn't need your stuff. This is a privilege to be able to be part of what God is doing. So here, there, there's the key. He says, test me. So let's, let's 
finish. The address that Dr. Ron told us was Matthew 23, 23. Remember that? People say, well, is it still in effect in the New Testament? I don't see it. I don't understand. If you have to ask that question, you've got to go back to spend more time with God, right? You're not going to figure that out from the church. You've got to go back to God. But Matthew 23, 23 is what? There's the tithing. Take a look. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You give a tenth of your spite. So they're tithing. They're mint, they're dill, and they're cumin. But you've neglected the more important matters of the law. So, so they've done something, but they neglected something. So then what does he say? They neglected justice, mercy, and faithfulness. So you'd say, okay, maybe tithing didn't matter. But get to this. No. You should have practiced the latter. You should have practiced justice, mercy, and faithfulness without neglecting the former. You should have done that. You're right to do the tithe. But you can't neglect justice and mercy and faithfulness. That's why we preach the gospel how? We declare it and we demonstrate it. We live it out as a cross-shaped church. You meet spiritual needs vertically and you meet physical needs horizontally, yes? And especially in this cultural context, we're not only post-Christian, we're anti-Christian. How are you going to get the world's attention? We meet physical needs. We meet them in their place of need where they are and we bring them where Jesus demonstrated that beautifully. When John the Baptist was in prison, he sends word to Jesus. He sends his disciples and they say, are you the one? Or should we be looking for someone else? Jesus doesn't rebuke him. What does he say to the disciples? Go and tell John what you saw and what you heard. The lame walk, the blind see, the lepers have been cleansed. So Jesus demonstrated the way the gospel should be lived out from the very first century right now to the 21st with our lips and our lives. We should not, that pendulum should not swing too far to either side. We proclaim it and we practice it. We demonstrate it and we declare it. All of that comes together. So here's the key in understanding this passage. Go to Acts 17, 25. God is not served by, he doesn't need us. He's not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everything, life, breath, and everything else. So we understand that if we're not needed, what does that mean? We're wanted. Isn't it nice to be wanted? You ever been picked last on a team? Oh, come on, I'm not the only one. No, isn't, 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 isn't that an... Isn't that a, middle school was the worst three years of my life. No, it really was. I'm sorry, Tommy, I... I was kind of, I was a heavy kid, and, and, and I went from, a, I was at an elementary school that was right down the street, and then I was bused to a middle school. And I'm in there, and I'll never forget, this was my experience. I couldn't wait to get the P.E. So you got to change, you got to get dressed out. And then they always pick the top athletes to be the coaches, right? And then they pick their teams. And you're standing in line, and all the people are being picked, and you're standing there, and you don't hear your name called, and you're, and you're watching the line go down and go down, and then you get to hear this at the end. Well, I guess I'll have to take bowling on my team. Let that smite you one more time. That was my middle school experience. I went into fight training in ninth grade. I said, i got to get this fixed. What's the point? God didn't do that for you. God didn't say, well, I guess I'm, I'm going to have to take Sylvia. I'm just going to have to take her. No, he went after you. You're first on his list. Every one of you are first on his list. You weren't the last one to be, I guess I got to take this guy. He doesn't need you. He wants you. 
Nothing we do is needed in the kingdom. We need each other, but he doesn't. That should change everything about the way we look at the gospel. Man, to not be needed and to be wanted, doesn't that do something to you? Haven't you run into circumstances where you're not wanted anymore in this life? By some, of course, we have to live like that because we're all broken and we're all hurting each other. We're all doing stuff we ought not to do so we get to a place where we don't even like each other anymore. I don't want you around. God never says that to you no matter what you do to him. I don't only want you around. I'm going to show you I died for you. You're mine. And what did Brian say while we were still sinners? He didn't wait for us to get cleaned up. All right, in Matthew 6, there's three things that are said that are put basically on the same plane. We want to be careful in understanding that. Giving, praying, and fasting. Watch these words. When you give. It doesn't say if you give, after you've prayerfully considered how to give. So there's three things in that chapter. Read the chapter later on your own. When you pray, when you fast, and when you give. They're all put on the same level. So if you think prayer is important, so is fasting. When was the last time we fasted? Dr. Towns has written a couple fantastic books from, from Liberty University, co-founder. Wonderful books on fasting. We've kind of lost sight of that, what that means. What does fasting mean in this life? But when you fast, when you pray, and when you give, nothing to pray about, nothing to think about. It's commanded to fast, to pray, and to give. And finally, 2 Corinthians 9, 6, and 7, remember this, whoever shows sparingly. This is one of the universal laws that God has given, and you know it by way of experience. Remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each man should give what he has decided in his heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion. You shouldn't give under compulsion. For God loves a what? Cheerful giver. Okay, there it is. There's the word. We could go on and on and on and on and on on the word, but that's enough. Now let's go to the worship. What did did the wise men do when they showed up And it wasn't the night he was born. It was sometime later, perhaps two years. They traveled. and What did they do? They worshiped. How? Watch this. Matthew 2, 11. When the Magi saw this child with his mother, they bowed down and they worshiped him. And as Dr. Kennedy said, in an act of worship, they opened their treasures and they presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense. And there it is. I never saw that. I never understood that. Giving is an act of worship. Matthew 6, 21. If you've ever read Randy Alcorn, The Treasure Principle, it's worth a read. If you have not, it's a powerful, powerful book in understanding this one particular passage. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. What does that mean? What does it mean? Where where is your treasure? How do you find out where your treasure is? You can look back. At, we just finished a month of October. Look back in October and see where your money went. They say, they say leaders in the, in the industry say you can look at two things to kind of understand where your treasure is. Looking at your money and looking at your time. And the word generally used is discretionary. But if you use that, somebody will say, well, I don't have any discretionary money. And I don't have any discretionary time. Okay, what are you doing with your time and your money? Because where your treasure is, your heart has to follow so think about it in your own personal life. I, what are some of your treasures? I can tell you one of mine. And it's hard for me to pass this up. In all of the work that I do and all of the, the study and the research, you want to know what one of my treasures are? And, and I don't think it's an idol. I hope it's not. But I'll, I'll, I'll buy any book, any time. 
that I think relates to what it is that I'm doing, whether I'm preaching or teaching or, or working on my, my project at Knox. I just, so I look back and I see the money that's spent on books and just another book in the library up on the shelf. And just, so that's one of my treasures. And I don't think it's idolatrous, but it probably is somewhere deep down. So you look and you see where, where is it easiest for you to spend? That, that's, that's where your heart is. That's where your heart has to be because the heart has to follow wherever your treasure is. So that's the key in understanding that passage, okay? Where, where your treasure, that's where your heart. 1 Corinthians 16, 2, on the first day of every week, guess what? You're here on the first day of the week. Each of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with your income. And then here's a very powerful passage. Paul is, Paul is going to tell a very rich and, and, and thriving group of churches in Corinth what the impoverished churches in Macedonian did. So get the context. Churches that had nothing, what they did, and he's using it as an example to the very rich and flourishing churches in Corinth. Ready? 2 Corinthians 8, 2-4. Listen to these words. In the midst of a very severe trial, their overflowing joy and extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. Listen to those words. For I testify they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability on their own. They couldn't give what they gave on their own. Something supernatural had to be going on. They urgently pleaded for us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the Lord's people. That's a powerful statement from Paul. That these churches that were really, really struggling were able to give beyond their normal means. And he's speaking to churches that were flourishing. And sometimes when we're flourishing, we can get really trapped where? In our flourish. We get locked into that. Never forget the story. It reminds me of the guy who was just possessed. Remember what I've said many times, it's not what you possess, it's what possesses you. Well, there was a very, very, very wealthy man who was really possessed by his, his treasures. And he had made a fortune throughout his life. And he'd made a deal with his family in his will. He said, I'm going to leave the houses and I'm going to leave all that, but I want all of my money. I want you to put all of my money in my casket with me when I go. And he made his family make the commitment and his wife. And, the church, and they were a church family. And they knew it. And the church was watching and paying attention to this. And the wife, they had all made a commitment. Sure enough, the guy ends up dying. The funeral day comes. And the church is watching as they have this funeral. The casket now is already closed. So the service has ended, and they come up to the woman in the grieving family, and they're just, they're, they want to know, did you, really, did you really honor what your husband asked for in his will? And so they asked her, did, we got to know, did you really put all of his money? He gave you the homes, he gave you the, did you put all of his, she says, I got to tell you something, in all of my life, that was the absolute biggest check I ever wrote in my life, every dime. I put in there. It's not what you possess. It's what possesses you. Some people don't have much. Much, but they squeeze the quarter so tight the eagle screams. Ah! Ah! They're just as possessed and they don't have any. This is a sign of being freed from God. When you're able to get rid of your stuff. I know some people who have given with both hands. 
They can't stop because they've been freed. Now, let me, let me make one point for our, our final point because they, people have come to me. I went to Dr. Kennedy, 2001. We had lost everything. We were over $100,000 in debt, and I asked him this question, Dr. Kennedy, is it possible for a Christian to find themselves in a situation where he cannot tithe? He said, absolutely. But he didn't leave it there. He said, but you want to try to figure out, number one, how did you get there? And number two, what's the direction you're going to move in to be able to get back to where you will be able to do that again? And that freed me. I just thought that, okay, I'm unqualified for service. There's nothing I can do. I can't tithe. And we could have gone and lived under a bridge. And he says, Tommy, I don't think that's what God wants for you. But what he does want is he wants you to consistently figure out how to go from here to get back to where you once were. Because we'd lost everything. So you might be that person. You might be in that set of circumstances. Don't let that, don't let that, don't let that tip you over. You could find yourself there. But the goal is what? How do we get to where we can do that? Because that's the place, that's the, that's the baseline of what it means to be free in Jesus. That's the key. And those who do it, all of them will say, that. If, you, if, you're, if you're unable to do it or if you don't do it, you hear from people who do and you go, man, these people are really whacked. They say, man, how free this is. But it's true. And then not until you get there do you realize it. And then when you get there, you go, wow, that really is true. Something happens when what? We have to let go of what? We have, to rele- we have a white knuckle grip on anything, yes? Right? We hold everything like this. You have to be able to what? Hold things loosely. Because everything you have is eventually going away. Unless you want to be buried with all your money, and I'll write the check. Every dime. I even give you a little increase. How do we shut this down? Let's take a look at the widow. What is, what is the one person that the scripture points to? Always when it talks about the widow. So let's see the widow. What, is God, what does God see that man doesn't see? As Jesus looked up, he saw the rich putting their gifts into the temple treasury. And by the way, they didn't just put it in. They were these metal containers. And there were a bunch of them in the temple courtyard. I think 11 or 12 for all different offerings. And when the coins went in, all sorts of noise. So they could get the applause of man. So all these coins would go in. And now you have this little widow. This little widow. got two little coins equals a penny. Listen. He saw also this poor widow put in two very small copper coins. It's equal to a penny today. Truly I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all the others. Now that doesn't make sense. All these people gave their gifts out of their wealth, but out of her poverty put in all she had to live on. So here's what we have to figure out. What does Jesus mean by more? Because she didn't give more. Okay, the family that gives 100 gives more than the family that gives 50. The family that gives 1,000 gives more than the family that gives 500. That, so it can't be more. That doesn't mean more. So Jesus has another. There's a biblical definition of more that we need to understand. So let's look at it. I'm going to give you three points. Real simple. One, two, three. Why does Jesus say that she put in more? Because the widow put in cheerfully, number one. So a lot of people don't put in cheerfully. She put in cheerfully in need of charity. She, she gave to the treasury. She needed the money. The treasury should have been supporting her. They should have been helping her. She was a widow in need. She gave her last two coins. You understand the point? We could preach just on that. We could go on for that for weeks. The, the, the church, the synagogue, they had a, they had a, the temple had a duty to care for widows and orphans. They weren't caring for her. So she puts in, to, in need of charity, she gives to the treasury, cheerfully. Number two, sacrificially. She gave out of her poverty. She didn't give out of her abundance. She didn't have any. Have we ever given sacrificially? There's the question. Jesus gave sacrificially. He laid his life down for us. He didn't tithe his blood. 
and faithfully. It was all she had to live on. God sees, listen to this, God sees what man overlooks. Do you notice that? It's not the amount. It's the heart. It's the why behind what we do. Listen, the coins of the rich were clanging in the courtyard of the temple. Right? The courtyard of the temple, the coins of the rich were clanging. But the coins of the woman were clanging in the court of heaven. Those two little pennies. That's amazing. God sees what man never sees. Man looks at the outward appearance and God looks at the heart. Okay? Last closing thought. First Chronicles 29, 14. Because this is our Great Commission edition passage, let's read it one more time. This is a historical narrative. This is King David speaking. And King David, listen to me, King David is talking about the difference between being a kingdom builder and a wealth builder. There's a difference between the two. You can spend your life building wealth. You can spend your life building the kingdom. King David, in this historical narrative, is talking about being a kingdom builder. Ready? One more time, we'll read it. But who am I and who are my people that we should be able to give as generously as this? Everything comes from you, and we have given you only what comes from your hand. Now, in all of our research, and we spent a lot of time, remember reading through Dr. Ron's book, spending time with him on how do you do a capital campaign, and all of the research that we did, we learned a few things that actually were hard to, to believe on the front end. But you operate out of faith, and then you watch something that happens in your church. We have the documented proof that this is what's happened in this church. Watch this. Take a look. There were some who went from not giving to regular giving. There are others who went from regular giving to obedient giving. Some went from obedient giving to generous giving. And some went from generous giving to sacrificial giving. That's the reality of a campaign that takes place. God stirs the hearts of his people. Why? It's God at work. It's God who's doing this. It's God who wants us. Remember, you're not the last one picked on the team. Oh, I guess I'll have to take Bolin. No. You're first in his heart. Not needed, but wanted. So we learn that as a church. We've watched it in the last year. And we're believing God between now and the end of this year and next year. Final word. Let's give it to C.S. Lewis out of mere Christianity. Ready for this? And then we'll go have our final song and then we'll have lunch. Every faculty you have, listen to these words. Your power of thinking or of moving your limbs from moment to moment is given you by God. If you devoted every moment of your whole life exclusively to His service, you could not give Him anything that was not in a sense His own already. Wow. There it is. Sacrificial giving is rooted in the sacrificial gift of Jesus. And now with outstretched arms and nail-scarred hands, guess who says come? Jesus. So if you're here in the sanctuary or by way of the internet, you've never surrendered your life to Christ. You've been working, 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 or maybe this is the first time you heard the gospel. Man, I never heard this before. There's an invitation that God has now just extended to you, having heard the truth of the gospel. 
And Jesus says, come to me. By grace through faith, come to me. All who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. You know what that rest is? The initial rest? You get to rest from your self-salvation project. You don't have to try to save yourself with your giving of your time, your talent, and your treasure, and all of your good works. No, you don't save yourself. You're done with that. You get to put your doing down. And you get to trust in Christ alone. And now's the moment of what? Decision. The Bible says it is appointed unto man once to die and then what? The judgment. Now, right now, if you hear my voice, it's a moment of decision. This afternoon, it might be too late. Come to Christ. By grace through faith, come to Christ. Trust in Christ alone. There's a simple prayer we're going to pray together. Pray it with me if you've never prayed. And if you pray for the first time, come see me. We'll have lunch together, but come see me and tell me you've prayed. And if you have any questions, come see me. And if you need any prayer, come see me. Come see me. But before you come see me, come through Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. For the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. Not the intellect of a preacher, the passion of a presenter. It is the power of the gospel. And Father, we're believing that today, for we know that there are some in this house and many by way of the internet who have never, ever been in a saving relationship with Christ. And if that's you, I'm speaking to you right now. God is speaking to you through me. And I ask that you pray these words, and every believer pray them with me. It's the prayer of the tax collector in the temple, and they're simple and straightforward words. Cry out, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. And if you cried that, by grace through faith, you can be assured that you are in Christ. That Christ has raised you from death to life, given you the gift of repentance and faith. And know this truth. Nothing will ever separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Nothing, not your sin, not Satan himself, nothing. For once you are in Christ, you are eternally secured. And for the rest of us, oh God, help us to keep walking by faith. Help us to loose our grip on everything that we hold tightly. And help us to focus more on you than anything else in this world. In Jesus' name, all God's people said. Amen. Do you all stand?